Well, again, my, my name is Lawrence Aja, and I'm one of the pastors here um, at Renaissance. And uh, if you will, uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I, I don't know all the reasons that we're all here, uh, God, but I just thank you that we are. God, I pray that your word, God, penetrates hearts. God, that we see that the purpose of our work is your work, and that ultimately you're calling us to be who you've always made us to be. God, let that word, let that reality, let that truth guide us and strengthen us today. In Jesus' righteous and holy name, amen. Amen. So I'm obviously excited to be here this morning, but just a quick show of hands. How many people are excited that the temperature is dropping right now? Look at these weird people. Like, call, call out these weird people. I am not excited. I'm not excited at all. It actually makes me miss living in California. I miss, where my California people at? Yeah. Don't laugh too quickly, all right? It makes me miss it. You know, because what ironic, a big confession I have about California is that for most of my life, I was afraid of the great state of California. I was really afraid of the great state of California. I would be around people who are from California, be like, look, that's why y'all freezing. You know, like, we're so nice. It's so nice outside. We have great weather. And I used to have this motto that I used to say to them. I said, sunlight is good, but survival is better. Sunlight is good, but survival is better. Now, I'm from the East Coast. I'm born in Brooklyn. Shout out Brooklyn. I know there's one person. I didn't even have to look. I was like, yay! <laughs> raised in New Jersey. Crickets, right? <laughs> raised in New Jersey. You know, but again, I looked at California as this distant place that I should be scared of, and it's for two reasons. First reason, earthquakes. I, I don't even need to, to, to validate and justify that. Earthquakes. There's just something about Harlem shaking to the lead of Mother Nature that just doesn't make me seem like excited about being there. So I'm not about that. The second reason, and this is the most serious for me, boys in the hood. Boys in the hood. I'm not sure. Boys in the hood. So I don't know if you're in the early 90s. For me, I'm in the early 90s. I watch Boys in the Hood, and it's an amazing, I love Boys in the Hood. It's a great movie. I love it. John Singleton's on point. Everything is great. But this had made me have nightmares of living or even visiting California, because literally all I imagined was dudes in jerry curls with dark shade and, and, and chucks, you know what I'm saying, asking why I have my colors on. You know what I'm saying? So I felt so afraid of California. And I literally saw myself in Ricky getting shot. You know, that, that was me. That was for people who watched it. <laughs> I literally saw myself in that, you know? So, like, this always threw me off <laughs> completely. And so that's why I consistently said to people, sunlight is cool, but survival is better, right? Now, reservations and all, I found myself down the yellow brick road in California in 2010 for business school. Now, I couldn't even imagine I would be in California, but I was there. And there's a lot of things I took from California. I took great memories, amazing friendships, my new Vitamix, just great things from California that I appreciated, you know. But one of the things that I didn't even expect I would take from California, which was awesome, was actually my business school's purpose statement, its mission statement. It was change lives, change organizations, change the world. Change lives, change organizations, change the world. Now, you can imagine this resonated with me. I came from a family of entrepreneurs who loved Jesus, and business was ex extremely important in our house. And so for me, coming up as an entrepreneur, being in business, not coming up with money, and having fam family members who were just essentially hustlers, doing what they can through business to be entrepreneurial, it was great to come to a place that felt like it validated that I could change the world through my work. But it also validated that changing the world was as much an individual as it was an institutional endeavor. Now, what I didn't realize until years later, that the purpose for my work was established well before I ever did anything. 
Well before I did anything. Well before I stepped foot on campus. Well before I ever even just connected with anybody at that school. The purpose for my work was to change lives, change organizations, and change the world. Now, part of it is that it was as much a call as it was a declaration. And the declaration was that seemingly, seemingly, these people here are world changers. But also, that the purpose for your work was to change the world. Now, I'd love to be up here asking like I was like the perfect mascot for this mission statement, that I internalized it, that I walked and I graduated, and I was, I'm going to change my change organization the world. But truth be told, if somebody went into my heart, and asked me really what the purpose statement I was living out with my life, it would have been a kind of amalgamation. It would have been like, change lives, change organizations, change the world, as long as my work fulfills me, fulfills all of my dreams, meet, meets my Sally Mae obligations, and then meets my unconscious and often unchecked desire for external validation through my work. Me, 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 me. That was my purpose. And I didn't really fully understand that. Now, you can imagine how much of a fraud I felt years later when I graduated and in a startup that me and my classmates started failed, and I had nothing to show for it, no money, nothing. I could barely make my rent in Mountain View, and I was taking all these odd consulting jobs, which made me question, what is my purpose? I'm doing here, I'm doing consumer packaged goods, I'm doing this. I was doing whatever I could. I was lost. So you can imagine, I felt a lot of things at that time, but the last thing I felt like was a world changer. Now, oddly enough, even through all of that, even through all of my struggle bus situation with my career, me not knowing what I should do or should not do, I found myself still seemingly thinking that I can and I probably should still try to change the world through my work. Now, a mission statement that calls people to change the world through their work is only powerful if we believe it is both necessary as well as possible. Well before Michael Jackson sang Man in the Mirror, there's been people it's inside of all of us, we feel like the world needs to change and that somehow, some way, we are probably responsible for changing it. Now, if a school's mission statement, a business school's mission statement that has spurred on generations of men and women to see their work as a means to change the world, how much more should you, if you are a follower of Jesus, see that ultimate world changer and see the work that we do and everything that we do as a means to change it as well. In the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 10, Paul declares this, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. What Paul is saying is that we were literally created for a purpose. Literally. And our purpose was built into our very being well before we were ever born, that God has established a purpose. He declared it well before we came into being. Now, a helpful definition for purpose that I love to use is purpose is the reason for which something exists or is accomplished. Purpose is the reason that something exists or is accomplished. We are means to an end. We are means to God's end. And God's end was to transform and redeem the world. Now, it's interesting because Jesus, whose name in Hebrew, Yeshua, literally means God saves, came to save it as well. So naturally, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are being led to do the same. 
So why does the world need to be saved? Because it's dark and it's decaying, which is why we are called the salt of the earth and the light of the world to step into that darkness and to step into that decay and to be a slowing force that God has called. Now, it doesn't take anyone long to look around and see that the world is decaying. Just turn on your TVs, shooting after shooting, wildfires, evil, war, famine, receding hairlines and expanding waistlines. It, you, I'm, amen, amen, right? <laughs> I'm like, was it here yesterday? You know, like, evil, straight up evil. <laughs> So how does Jesus, the light of the world, our Redeemer, come in to address this darkness and decay? Well, you know what he does? He comes in the flesh, deeply into earth, as Emmanuel, God with us. And he comes to proclaim the purpose and the power of the kingdom of God. That Messiah that all the prophets were talking about in the Old Testament. I'm here. This is good news. So we see in Matthew 4 and 23, Matthew shares this, Jesus went throughout the kingdom of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Now, this news was so good that it spread throughout the entire region and crowds of people came to follow him. Now, please hear this. Jesus did not heal to encourage us to all become doctors, because if that was true, that would mean Jesus was Nigerian. <laughs> and I can neither confirm nor deny that from the text, though Jesus consistently answers questions with questions, so I definitely think he's Nigerian or his father is Nigerian, right? <laughs> but Jesus healed... <laughs> it's true. Um, Jesus healed, <laughs> but the truth is that Jesus healed to give a decaying world a glimpse and a preview of what God promised he would do to all of creation. That's what Jesus came to do. So Renaissance, what if God, what if Jesus is trying to work through you and the people around you to give them the glimpse, a preview of what God had promised he would do to all of creation? Now, from the time that Jesus came on the scene in the beginning of Matthew, Jesus had a purpose, and he knew that he would not be with us very long. He needed a way to share with the world that my purpose is to give people a glimpse of this kingdom, this beautiful kingdom. I want everybody to know it. So what does he do? In addition to teaching, healing, he takes this crowd of people up on a mountainside and he gives them the Beatitudes, which we just read. And literally in all of that, what he's doing is he's giving them a picture of this is the kingdom of God. This is what the kingdom of God will be like. But he also says the kingdom of God, these are its citizens. This is how they're going to be like as well. Now, his chief purpose, going up on that hill and then leading and then calling them the salt of the earth and the light of the world, was to encourage them before he left them. Let me encourage you. I know what you're about to go through. I know what you're about to endure. Let me encourage you before I leave you. Let me encourage you. He then enlists his followers. He enlists them to carry on his purpose, to give this picture of the kingdom through every crevice of society, including their work. We forget that earlier in Matthew, when he was calling his first disciples, when he was calling Peter and Andrew, Simon, 
He called them from the boat. He called them from their place of work. And he literally reorients their mind, their purpose around work, around his divine purpose. In Matthew 4 and 19, it says this, Come, follow me, and I will send you out to fish for people. And he does the same thing for James and John. Now, this makes sense. He wants the entire world to hear about this kingdom, an entire world to hear this good news. So wouldn't it make sense that he would place a particular focus on the place that you're going to most likely be around the most people consistently, day by day, which is why the work is important. Now, Jesus is not saying that following him means that you need to leave your work or that you should encourage others to leave your work, as the church has been guilty of doing historically. What he is saying is that the ultimate purpose for your work and for your life is his work. The ultimate purpose for your work and for your life is his work. And if we're to live out his purpose for our work, we have to be deeply rooted in who we are, deeply rooted in where we are, and deeply rooted in what we're doing. And here's what's at stake. If we don't, we're not going to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world that he's called us to be. If we don't do this, we will deceive ourselves into thinking that we are truly living out our faith at work when really we're just putting all our faith in work. It is impossible to live out your faith in your work when you're committed out a purpose for your work that is not his. Now, it's scary, trust me, hear me, to be salt and light. It is a scary thing to think about. Jesus is calling us to be salt and light. Who am I? It brings a lot of fear, brings a lot of shame when you actually look at yourself and you say, how much like the light am I? How much like the salt have I been living? And so I understand there are many challenges to this. One of those is fear. That fear. If there was a market index on how Christians are doing in the world and how they're perceived, our stock would be down right now. Christians are not hot in the streets right now, right? I remember I had an, I had an instance years ago. I was doing some client work, and a, a headhunter recruiter was actually trying to share some client work with me. She's like, oh, just share your resume just to show your experience. And then that recruiter came back, and we had a feedback. She's like, oh, well, the client likes it, everything, that's cool. But she's like, you may want to lose the Christian stuff on your resume. I was like, "Can't?" Like, I was like, <laughs> like, wait, what? So y'all know what I did. Because if I didn't do that, I wouldn't share it. Uh, <laughs> or you feel unworthy. Who am I? When I see how I'm living, who am I to be a representative of Jesus Christ? of God. I have no place, no right to be talking about Jesus Christ when people know, they see me out, they know what I'm doing. I, don't feel, un I feel unworthy to be associated with the light and the salt of the earth. But lastly, you may just feel like that is a personal decision. I don't want to infringe upon anybody's faith. That's personal. That's between me and God and whoever they worship. So you feel like it's not even your responsibility to talk about faith at work. But even with all of these reasons, there are two big reasons that we really struggle with being who God has called us to be through our work. One of it is around purpose. One of the biggest questions that we continue to come back to is, what is my purpose? What is my purpose? In Rick Warren's A Purpose Driven Life, he shares two of life's most pressing questions is, why am I here? And what is my purpose? And what he says is that in order to answer that question truthfully, honestly, and objectively, 
We need to start with God. But the truth is, too often, we don't start with God. Because of how central work is to our lives, we start with work to find it, as opposed to God to find it. And what that does is that, that, that leads you into subtly believing, subtly believing that you go to work to discover your purpose, as opposed to going to work to demonstrate your purpose, a purpose that was already established. Now, still one of the biggest challenges for many of us, even if we don't fall into the common traps around work, is that many of us aren't sure about how we could practically, practically live out our faith at work. Like, what does that mean? Like, what am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to walk a certain way? I'm supposed to talk a certain way? How do I do this? Because too often we look at the traditional evangelistic methods of sharing our faith, and we feel it's either ill-suited or inconsequential to the work context that we live in. So we don't feel like we could really do anything. Tim Keller has this great quote in Every Good Endeavor. He shares, to be a Christian in business then means much more than just being honest or not sleeping with your coworkers. It even means more than personal evangelism or holding a Bible study at the office. Rather, it means thinking out the implications of the gospel worldview and God's purposes for your whole work life and for the whole organization under your influence. Now, the only thing worse than feeling like you lack purpose in your work is feeling ineffective and useless in the purpose you've been given. Now, before I move on, I do want to say this, particularly for those who are newer to Christianity, you're new to the faith, or you're not sure where you stand with God. And I'm pretty sure that inside, at some point in your life, inside the workplace or outside the workplace, you probably encountered a brother or sister who believes in Jesus, who probably read these salt and light scriptures, and that they wanted to share that with you. But even with all the best intentions, they had, they had you feeling more like a personal project than someone that you, they, they loved. You didn't feel loved by them. You felt like you were their personal project. And now hear this, I, I have a lot of compassion for anybody who shares their faith. There are many people in this room who have come to faith because somebody was bold enough or courageous enough to share their faith in their workplace. And evangelism matters. If it's good news, it's news worth sharing. But what you need to hear is that more than anything, Christians are called to be something that you can and should also notice without a bullhorn that announces it. That our lives, our view of work, and how we work would be a beautiful testament about somebody who is deeply connected to God. Now, over the past few weeks, one of the things we've been looking at is the Faith and Work series, exploring how we, as followers of Jesus, can more intentionally and meaningfully connect our faith to our work. And the beautiful thing is that Jesus Christ gives us some guidance and how we could best live out our faith at work and live in that divine purpose that we were created for from the very beginning. Now, uh, Christy, a few moments ago, read uh, the chapters five, chapter 5, 1 through 16, and we wanted it all read, even though the focus of our passage is the salt and light scriptures, because we wanted you to understand the context through which these words were spoken to these people. And so you have to hear this. I know this is one of the most uncomplicated texts. You are the salt of the earth, and you are the light of the world. It is jarring. But I want us to walk through this in a way that we could fully understand what that really means for your life. I'll read from verse 13. You, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how could it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone 
in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. That's powerful. Now, my hope today is more than anything that you see that God, through Jesus Christ, is encouraging you to be who he's made you to be. But second, I hope you see that the purpose for your work is his work. And that to live out your faith at work, you have to be deeply rooted in who you are, deeply rooted in where you are, and deeply rooted in what you're doing. To be the salt and the light at work, we have to be deeply rooted in who we are. Now, the only time someone tells you who you are is because it's something you should know, something you don't know, or something you forgot or are bound to forget. Or if somebody's calling you out and telling you off, they tell you who you are, right? Consistently. Now, Jesus in verses 13 and 14, he's essentially doing this for all these reasons. Now, before saying anything else, I have to spend some time on this. I cannot speed past this. When Jesus is talking about light, he is not talking about flavoring. He is not talking about flavor. Context matters. Context matters, not just the grammatical context, but the social and historical context. What did this mean to the people when they were hearing it at that time? For them, it meant a lot. Salt was vital. Salt was central to the survival of the society. Its main uses was to preserve, to bind, and to purify food and religious sacrifices. That's what salt meant. Now, hear this. There are many people, at one point, I've heard people use this and apply it this way. They'd be like, that's why you can't oxygen grab. That's why you can't be too Christian. That's why you can't have too many Christians in the room, because it's going to be too salty. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's just like, I don't, know, I don't know if that's a good hermeneutics. You know, like, it's in, you don't know. <laughs> You're like, no, because what the text implies here is that the more salt, the better. They didn't have Frigidaire or Whirlpool, literally, for their survival, to keep that meat from decaying. They needed salt. They needed it. Now, to understand why this is all important, we have to understand the context and when they're hearing it. Jesus is literally telling this to a room of people from all over the region, Jews, Gentiles. Many of these people who were just healed of sickness, these are the people who were cast out. They were just healed of sickness, and they, he was just saying that, that they, yes, they, were the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Jesus was literally speaking to the New York Knicks of the ancient Middle East, the nobodies, the ragtag group of people. Nick fans. <laughs> he was literally saying that these people, this ragtag group of people, you guys are central to the survival of the world. Can you imagine how they felt? Unworthy, unqualified. Who am I to be the salt and be the light? How we felt when we're called the salt and the light. They felt that. Now, Jesus himself, who preserved life like salt and healed the sick, Jesus, who was the light, as he said in John 8 and 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. But it's just not that he called them to be salt and light. He was literally rooting for them in their identity. He's bigging them up in their identity. Because hear this, salt doesn't think about salting. Light doesn't think about lighting. It just is. It just is. Jesus was making a declaration before anybody gave a demonstration. You are. You are. You are. And why? 
Jesus wanted them not to base their identity on what they did. Because the tendency is when you hear the scriptures, you hear all this, the tendency is to think of how am I being salt and light? What am I doing I'm not doing? What am I doing and I'm not doing? That is the tendency. And Jesus was like, no, 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 no. I want to root you in who you are first. Because if you don't, again, you're going to see yourself as fishermen and not fishers of men. Please remember who you are. Now, this is so important, particularly this week when you go into your CGs. I, I beg you, please do not make the entire conversation about what you're doing and not doing to be salt and light in the world. Because this is just as much about being as it is about doing. Because there's many people doing a lot of things that don't know Jesus. But you can't be who Jesus has called you to be if you've not accepted him in faith. Now hear this. Jesus really wanted us to root our identity in him and really be motivated. Like, you know, it's like somebody said, like, oh, I'm, I, you know, I'm my cousin's Beyonce and something like that. You feel excited just because it's who you're associated with. And we know that concept. But more than anything, there is something about somebody coming up to you and bigging you up and telling you who you are that inspires you. I remember this. I love movies, so clearly I go there. I remember I was watching The Lion King. You know what I'm saying? The Lion King and Simba. Simba is feeling down and unsure of himself. His father had just died, and he runs into Rafiki, right? And so he sees Rafiki, and he's just like, my father just died. He's like, your father's not dead, right? And he tells him, he leads him off into this area where there's a creek, and Simba comes down, and he sees his father's reflection in the creek. But then soon, he looks up at the sky, and he sees his father in the sky. And his father comes down in this booming James Earl Jones voice, and he says, Simba. <laughs> I'm going to drink some water. Right? I can't mess this up now. <laughs> Simba, you have forgotten me. You have forgotten me. You are more than what you have become. Remember who you are. You are my son and the one true king. Remember who you are. There, oh, there, I almost forgot who I was when I was doing it. <laughs> there is something about being reminded of who you are that motivates you to be who God has called you to be. Remember who you are. You are. Which is why it's so powerful when you're in the book of Matthew that the first chapter of Matthew starts with a genealogy of Jesus Christ. And what that reminds you is that anybody who puts their faith in Jesus Christ has descended from the one true son and the king of kings. It doesn't matter whether you are in McDowell's mopping floors like Prince Akeem. Regardless of what you're doing, you're still descended. If anybody who has rooted themselves in Christ is descended from royalty. Scripture has called us a royal priesthood. And when Jesus is saying that you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world, he said, put on your robe. You are royalty. What I'm calling you to is going to remind you, it's going to, it's going to require you to be rooted in who you are. Put on your robe. Now we see in verse 13, he says, but if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. He then goes on to say, a town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. There are many people in this room who have forgotten who they are. 
because they work in places that consistently discount and dismiss who they are based on what they do. There are many people in this room who have forgotten who they are because they have believed the lie and the unhealthy beliefs and a corrupt understanding that you are what you do. Now hear this. If you're trying to find who you are in work, you will certainly forget who you are in him. God's purpose for your work is his work. To be the salt and the light at work, we have to be deeply rooted in where we are. Now, salt is most effective when it deeply penetrates the thing that is looking to preserve. Likewise, light is most effective in the deep, dark places. Now, by a show of hands, how many people have ever had food that wasn't well-seasoned? Put, put up your hands up. Put your hands up. Thanksgiving is around the corner. And I'm going to say this, and I don't care. You could at me on this. I'm going to say this right now very clearly. There is nothing worse than consuming bland, not well-seasoned turkey. Nothing worse. Cardboard ministry. Nothing worse than having turkey that is bland. Now, I'll be clear, I know I said everything about salt, not relating to flavor, and it still holds, so just stay with me because this is serious. I want y'all to hear this. Now, a couple years ago, I had a bland turkey situation, right? So I went to my friend's house in the evening of Thanksgiving. After I had dinner at my place first, I went to their house for Thanksgiving. You know, you got to do that because you don't know what you're about to get. So <laughs> I was just like, I'm going to eat here first. I'm going to be there at 7. You know, like, <laughs> that's how I felt. So I go, to, I go there. And, and, and just speaking the truth and love about this turkey, um, <laughs> flavor took the day off. You know what I'm saying? Flavor took Thanksgiving off. And so I was just mad confused. I was just like, yo, I was with you on the phone when you said you were seasoning the turkey. I was with you on the phone. But what I learned long ago in my cooking journey was that you can't season all meats the same way. Like I said, vegans in the room, cauliflower. Think cauliflower, right? You, you can't season. You can't just salt bay drop the seasoning and think that think that this is going to get in. You got to work that bad boy in like you're kneading dough. You know, you got to work that in. And so I have so much paranoia about this is that I don't want anybody to feel this anymore. So I, every year, about 24 to 48 hours out of Thanksgiving, for the past like 10 years, I've given people, like, it's kind of like, where's your child at 5 p.m.? It's 24 hours out from Thanksgiving. Have you seasoned your turkey? That's what I do. Now, my paranoia around people having well-seasoned turkey or cauliflower informs not just that I season, but informs how I season. And you, I recognize that in order for the seasoning, that salt to be effective, it has to be deeply penetrated into the thing in which it's looking to season. Now, similarly, Jesus is saying to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world, we have to be deeply rooted in where we are at work to be effective. What that means is that we have to be present and deeply embedded at every level of work at every organization, at every level. What this means for people is that, no, it does not affect your witness. You do not have a compromised witness because you are the CEO and you want to climb the corporate ladder. It does not mean that. Nor does it mean if you are a customer service worker or you are somebody in the support staff or you are at a lower level that your witness is any less powerful in that organization. Because we have to be, we're called the salt of the earth, light of the world. We have to be everywhere. Where people are at work, Christians must be at work. Now, this past week, I was in Dallas, and I was there for a gathering of pastors um, who ultimately came from business and ultimately are just seeing how they could apply their principles 
in the context of the church. And one of the things that was interesting was that I was driving back to the airport with one of the pastors who was a full-time firefighter in San Diego. So clearly we are praying for the people in California who are dealing with the wildfires right now. So he was telling me, he's telling me his, about his 24-hour calls, and I'm just like blown away like, my goodness. But I couldn't help but think as he was speaking to me, just imagining an entire building burning. I had 100 rooms in there and fire in every single room. And they had 100 firefighters, and they sent them in. None of those firefighters would care what room they were assigned to. None of them would care what child they were looking to save because no child was more worthy of saving than the other. They were clear about their purpose. They're clear about what God is calling them to do. And please hear this. I know there are people right now at their work that they're, they feel undervalued, underpaid, that environment is poisonous, and you feel like it is literally a living hell. But all I'm asking you to consider is maybe imagine if, imagine if the place that you're in for a season, that that is the burning room that God has called you in to save one of his children. Imagine that. Imagine that. Now, in verse 15 and 16, the scripture says, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. This makes the implications of being the light in our workplace that much greater. Now hear this. Christians are not the only illuminating force in our workplace because God, through common grace, is holding everything together. And his light is being manifested in so many different places. But it should at lead us to ask the question, where are the Christians with Me Too? Where are the Christians with the incidences of discrimination, unequal pay? Where are the Christians when our institutions, when our organizations, when our companies consistently perpetrate darkness in the workplace? Where are the Christians? Where are the Christians? Now I understand this is difficult for us to even sit in because we recognize the darkness and decay in the world that we are looked and called out to illuminate often lives as well in the church. But what I am saying is that if we are truly rooted deeply in where we are, we wouldn't consistently be the last people to shine God's light upon the darkness in our workplace. We wouldn't be the last people. My hope is that seeing what's going on in the world, somebody is triggered here. Where were the Christians when these things were coming up? Where were they? Were they deeply rooted in organizations? Did they just not know? Or worse, were they perpetrating it themselves? We have to be deeply rooted in what we do. So the real question is, so how do we practically live out our faith at work? To be salt and light at work, what we do actually does matter. What we do matters. But it can never supersede who we are in Christ. Jesus is just not content with us being Christian in doctrine and literally just thinking our way through our place in the workplace. What God is calling us to do is to renew our mind, renew our view of everything that we do at work in light of his redemptive purpose for the world. Now, one of the ways that I help to, me to think about how best that I can connect my faith to my work is through what I call the five Ps. Now, we don't have time to go through all of these, and I'm going to unpack just a few, 
but I definitely want you to write this down. And with each of these things, I want you to think about these in terms of two main, two main ways. First, think of this as an individual. How does this P impact me individually? Then think of this organizationally, institutionally. How does this P impact where I work? Then ask the question of everything, everything. In what way? Is it or is it not? Or can it be more glorifying to God? Is it? Is it not? Or can it be more glorifying to God? I'm going to go right in. Proficiency. Now, we touched on this earlier in the series. Doing our work well is a witness to God. Now, Dorothy Sayers, she has this beautiful and powerful quote about Jesus as the carpenter. And she reimagined what Jesus as the carpenter would be like. She says this, no crooked table legs or ill-fitting drawers ever, I dare swear, came out of that carpenter shop at Nazareth. Nor if they did, could anyone believe that they were made by the same hand that made heaven and earth. No piety in the worker will compensate for work that is not true to itself. For any work that is untrue to its own technique is living a lie. How well we do our work matters. Product. How does my work product or company product directly or indirectly impact the people around me, inside my company and outside of my company? How does this impact people? Because you could be proficient at your job in something that does undue harm to other people. I could be a proficient scam artist. I could be proficient in the content I'm putting out in the world. It's not uplifting people. You could be proficient in things that are not of God. Sit in that people. Now, this is one of the most difficult things because, as we said, it's scary to think about sharing your faith. People. So I just ask you just to consider this question. Whether you're a follower of Jesus or you're not, let's just say that everything that Jesus said about heaven and earth, everything he said about the kingdom, everything he said, including that you are his ambassadors. Ambassadors are not elected. They're chosen. Imagine if all of those things are true. Wouldn't that cause you to reimagine your relationships with your coworkers? In the least, maybe God right now has divinely orchestrated these people to be around you so that you may be a witness to them. In the least, I would say, of anybody in this room, we should in the least be praying for our coworkers. In the least. Personal. Now, this is the most, this is the most difficult one that makes us uncomfortable. Our personal behavior, how does our personal behavior impact our witness at work? Now, this is hard to wrestle through because we know in society there are people on two extremes. Those people who say, what you do doesn't matter. God loves me anyway. Your personal, your personal response, it doesn't matter. And then there are people who feel it matters too much, trying to work out their faith through their works and feeling self-righteous. What I need you to hear as salt and light, you would believe that if you are filled with the fullness of Christ, then you would more look like Christ. And hear this. In the prodigal son, the older brother and the younger brother were both equally distant from the father. Equally. And so if we're really going to be connected and connected in him and reflecting the light, our personal behavior matters, not just at 3 p.m., but at 3 a.m., especially when people look at Christians today as the biggest hypocrites of them all. Our personal witness, our personal behavior matter. Holiness matters. Purpose. What governs you? We've been talking about this all day. What is your purpose? If your purpose is governed, if what's governing you is making a name for yourself at your job, if what governs you is making all this money, then you are not going to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. What governs the policies of your company? 
Why are women being paid unequally? Why are these things happening? Why is their maternity leave shorter? You have to ask that question. In the least, I would say that we would be the ones raising our hand asking the question why at every level of the organization. Now, if you're hearing all of this and you're feeling overwhelmed, you're feeling uncomfortable, you're feeling triggered and feeling like, you know what, I will never measure up. If this is what Christianity, if this is what the faith is, I will never measure up. Good. Because you never will. But the good news is that we, even when we fail to measure up to be the salt and light that God has called us to be, we have a Savior who is our salt and light, who sees who we are, where we are, and what we're doing. And because of his great love for us, he nailed that all to the cross. The good news is that at the cost of his own life, when he could have preserved himself, Jesus, our salt, became a pure and perfect sacrifice, binding us to God and one another so that we could be co-workers in Christ forever. The good news is that Jesus Christ at that cross, our light, the light of the world, for three hours hung in darkness so that whoever should believe in him will never stay in it. The good news is that at that cross, Jesus died and he split the earth, but he also rose and he changed the world. It was because of his work that we could ultimately view the purpose in our work as his. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your finished work. We thank you for your finished work at the cross. When we are overwhelmed, God, by all the ways that we are not, you remind us about who we are. It is not debatable. It is not something we must work up. It is something that you have established before the beginning of the earth. God, let this word, let your word remind us of who we are. Let it guide us and, and, and encourage us where we are. And please let the Holy Spirit guide us to do what you've called us to do, but most importantly, to be who you called us to be the salt of the earth, and the light of the world. In Jesus' righteous and holy name, amen, amen, and amen.